I'm Alex Perrine. I'm a staff writer at The New Republic. And I'm Laura Marsh, the magazine's literary editor. This is The Politics of Everything, a show about the intersection of culture, media, and politics. Today, we're talking about the California wildfires. How have unchecked development and runaway climate change conspired to exacerbate the disasters? How can they be mitigated? And how have they shifted the politics of the region? This is the politics of everything. Around the world, fire season is growing increasingly severe and increasingly lethal. Last year in Australia, wildfires destroyed more than 46 million acres. This year, more than 3 million acres of the Brazilian rainforest and more than 5 million acres of the American West have burned. Smoke from the fires in California and Oregon reached New York, then Europe. In the U.S., California has borne the brunt of the damage. The August Complex, which is burning in the Mendocino Forest, has become the largest fire in the state's history. As we're recording, new evacuation orders are in place for parts of Mendocino, Humboldt, and Trinity counties. The scale of the destruction is astounding, but should it be surprising? We're here because of decades of bad decisions about development, fire management, and climate change. People warned us this could come. Is the state now doomed to keep burning like this year after year? Or can California be saved? We are joined now by the writer, urban theorist, and historian Mike Davis. He's the author of more than 20 books, including his most recent with John Wiener, Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So um, seasonal wildfires in California are, so to speak, a normal occurrence, uh, if not at the same scale or severity that we're seeing this year. Can you give me a sense of California's history with wildfires Most of California's native vegetation evolved with fire and with the human presence. Humans have been in California for at least 10,000 years. And all during that time, native Californians have been burning, starting small fires. We had no large, contiguous areas of unburnt brush, unburnt forest. There were great fires, of course, but they were rare. Now, when the Americans came in the 1850s, they brought a different kind of fire because they introduced basically industrial sources of ignition through uh, mining and farming into the landscapes. But fire in residential areas, wildfire, only really became a problem after the Second World War when a couple of things happened. One of those was the adoption by the Forest Service of total fire suppression in the shrublands and forests of California. The other was the beginning of growth at the edge, pushing further into areas, native vegetation, creating something fire scientists call the wildland urban interface. Now we're in a very new and different era, not only because of climate change, but because something like a quarter of Californians now live within the wildlands themselves. Hmm. Some of them driven there by inability to pay mortgages or rents in the flatlands. Hmm. Others, just ordinary people, retirees, seeking a bit of California beauty. But the real driving force behind it has been the migration of wealth Hmm. in search of view lots, ocean views, vineyards, forest lakes. For instance, my... uh, Literary agent has a beautiful house on the beach, 
but it's not big enough to house her entire art collection. So she built an even bigger house, like, I don't know, four or 5,000 square feet in a beautiful part of the San Diego backcountry. And it's staggering and a bit insane that the majority of new housing built in California in the last generation has been built either next to the wildlands or within it itself. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, that's a crazy statistic about how many Californians now live in places that are vulnerable to this. And it seems like we know these fires are already common and are not going to go away. Why are people still developing in these places so much? Well, the pressure put upon undeveloped regions is huge. I live in San Diego and in San Diego County, we have now 10,000 homes about to be constructed in what are officially described as extreme fire hazard areas. Wow. And all attempts to block these developments have been rebuffed. The developers and wealthy homeowners have disproportionate political clout. But beyond that, there's a very strange phenomenon, which may seem a little absurd to people unfamiliar with the politics of ex-Serbia. And that is people don't learn the most obvious lessons. In 2003, the backcountry east of San Diego, where I grew up, had a fire that destroyed 1,000 homes, killed 20 people. Every single home's been rebuilt. And most of the homes are larger than before. And people have totally bought into this false ideology of defensible space. Mm. But a recent study last year by John Keeley at UCLA looked at 40,000 examples of homes that were burnt or almost burnt by fire over an eight-year period and found that brush clearing, even 300 feet of brush clearing, played no role in saving homes Mm. uh, whatsoever. And so this is a, a mirage that people are following. All these fires that have started since August, because there have been fires in the Pacific Northwest and so many other places, have been totally understaffed. And firefighters face dangers today that didn't exist a half century ago. They're under tremendous pressure to defend individual residences. Hmm. And that only go worse hmm. unless we address the problem of the residential building itself hmm. and enact controls on development. But every attempt to do that by referendum or through county boards of supervisors has been defeated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm actually curious. I went back and I found something you wrote in 2003 about a fire I think you mentioned earlier. And you said that it looked like that fire mapped out into support for the recall campaign of Gray Davis that had just happened recently, right? Where the reactionary right wing had ousted the Democratic governor and, and sent Schwarzenegger to the governor's mansion. Um, what's the politics of the partisan politics of settlement in these vulnerable places? Well, the areas I'm talking about, apart from progressive enclaves in the the Bay Area and Mendocino and so on, this is hardcore Trump country. Mm -hmm. Anti-tax, anti-government, except when it turns to fire suppression. Well, of course, that's a lot of government right there, fire suppression. (laughs) And uh, the best example I can think of the kind of politics of this form of gentrification of the wild is Duncan Hunter Jr., the Republican congressman who's currently on his way to federal prison. (laughs) He represents the backcountry east of San Diego. 
an area that when I grew up there consisted largely of ordinary families who wanted to keep horses or people who just didn't want to live with a lot of neighbors around. Hmm. It now it's dominated by uh, something the realtors call starter castles. <laughs> and there's some actual real castles back there as well. Now, Duncan Hunter was a major opponent of any attempt to regulate development hmm. in the wild lands of California. Absolutely fanatic. And the same way he was fanatic against immigrants, against unions, against affirmative action. So that's a, a typical case study hmm. of the kind of politics that are generated by an ex-urbanization, which is not only a quest for beauty, it's also a form of white flight. Hmm. People who don't want to live in the urban and suburban diversity of modern California, hmm. because these areas are overwhelmingly white. Hmm. Clearly, uh, as you just said, th there's a kind of politics that people bring with them when they move to these areas. Do you think it's reinforced by the experience of fire and by the experience of being kind of embattled? Well, I thought back in 2003 and 2007, when I wrote about two major firestorms, that would, would put some reason and fear in the minds of people and let them reconsider the decisions they've made, the lack of any kind of real planning or control over the overdevelopment of these areas. It just doesn't seem to be the case. Last year, the year before, I went with a film crew making a documentary about California fire. And I revisited the area that had been burnt in 2003, where a thousand homes had been lost. And we talked to homeowners, and they were absolutely convinced that they were now safe. The fire had been mitigated by their brush clearance. Huh. And I found that astonishing and not a little bit frightening as well. Yeah. Well, it seems there are two ways that this could shape a person's politics. It could either be a wake-up call, which I think is what you were expecting, or it can be something that you see combated. I mean, and it doesn't seem like a coincidence that many of the people who are sent to fight these fires are prisoners. The idea that you can have these suburbs full of wealthy people who don't like the state and who are endangered and will be rescued by people trapped within the carceral state just kind of fits together in a very almost too neat way. But unfortunately, it doesn't make any moral or intellectual impact mm. on the people whose lives and property are saved. Mm. I mean, California essentially uses slave labor mm -hmm. to fight fire. But I mean, this is one of many things about California and the age of the Democratic supermajority and the legislature and a Democratic government. It just should be totally unacceptable. Mm. But if you listen to what politicians say after one of these fires, Take Governor Newsom, for instance. He will immediately give a press conference and say, this horrible fire is a result of global warming. And this is the reason why California must continue to lead the country <laughs> in reducing emissions. But he tends to totally admit what needs to be done in the here and now. Because the one issue that politicians never want to face is this question of exurban development and mm. controlling it or even clawing some of it back. And when it comes to admissions, the fires between the beginning of August and the middle of this month emitted more carbon dioxide than did the entire state of California through vehicles and power plants and wow. buildings did in the previous year. Mm. Wow. At the end of the day, 
we're losing landscapes that have always defined the beauty of America to us. And that's an irreversible result of climate change and the reaction of vegetation to increasing dryness and heat. One last question. When you started writing about this in the 90s, did you foresee that kind of devastation? No, no. I was trying to describe an unusual convergence of natural and social disasters and the confusion between what is natural and what's social that they created. And I argued in the book I wrote, Ecology of Fear, that Californians were really waking up to ordinary disaster. Hmm. But what's happening now are extraordinary events and all kinds of new interrelationships between climate and vegetation that are incomparably more threatening than what I was talking about in the early 1990s. Um, Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. We've seen fires this year beyond California. Out-of-control wildfires have become a feature of the climate crisis in countries across the world. Naomi Klein has written about these disasters and what they mean for the future. Her new book is On Fire, The Burning Case for the Green New Deal. Naomi, thank you for joining us. Really good to be with you, Laura. So we're talking about the wildfires on the West Coast. Um, In 2017, in British Columbia, you lived with the effects of these fires. Can you tell us a bit about what you experienced there? Um, Yeah, so 2017 was another summer when the West was on fire. I went to British Columbia, to the coast where my family lives. Uh, And it was really scary because where we are on the coast, you can only get there by ferry. Uh, There isn't a road. So you're just acutely aware when things are very, very dry that like in so many communities, there's one road out, one road in, and you risk this really severe bottleneck. Uh, My mom is disabled and you know, we have friends who, you know, with a, a lot of mobility challenges and, you know, just this kind of claustrophobic feeling, you know, it suddenly struck me how precarious it was, this business of not being on fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, in British Columbia this year, we were lucky we had uh, a colder summer. And so when the rest of the region ignited, we had these incredible lightning storms here. I've got nothing I have ever seen. Oh. And so I was sure it was going to go up, but it it didn't go up. But the smoke came, mostly from Washington State. And so this part of coastal BC has had the second worst air quality in the world. The the smoke has now cleared, which is why I'm not hacking as I talk to Uh you. But on the first day of school, we were right in the midst of this air quality crisis. The teachers have to make this impossible decision. You know, do we open the windows to protect the kids from COVID or do we close them to protect them from wildfire smoke? You know, these are decisions no one should have to make. Yeah. I mean, do you think that's the future of the developing climate crisis, seeing these disasters stacking on top of each other and life becoming more and more intolerable as these disasters overlap? I mean, I do think that we are in an era, and I don't think it's the future. I think it is the present, where every disaster holds every other disaster inside of it, and you really can't pry them apart. So I think part of the mistakes we've made in in the climate movement is always talking about the future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And something in our brain says, oh, that's a future problem. Right. I guess the reason I'm pausing over the question is I actually think a lot of the longer term ways that we protect our bodily health from highly infectious diseases 
are pretty compatible with climate solutions. Mm -hmm. In general, I think it would be good if we had a lot more outdoor education, not just because the virus spreads less outdoors, but also because it would be nice if the education we gave to our kids connected them to the landscapes where we live, you know, because part of the reason why we are seeing these virulent fires isn't just because things are hotter and drier. It's also because the knowledge of the land that has been carried and protected by indigenous people who've been here for millennia, they have been trying to tell us for a really long time that you have to stop suppressing fire, Mm -hmm. that fire is part of any healthy ecosystem. But we have this huge fear of fire where as soon as there's a fire, you suppress it. Um, So it's all interrelated. But I I actually have been trying to think of COVID as in a way, a kind of a, a teacher that can that, it, that has some important lessons to teach about how to live in ways that are kind of less in conflict with the natural world. Right. Well, it's interesting that you link sort of what the response could be to two of them, because with COVID, we have seen governors take some drastic measures to change the way we live to try and prevent the spread of this virus. The West Coast burning and hurricanes destroying cities also seems like crises that politicians should respond to. And yet we don't see the same kind of drastic measures being taken in response to these wildfires. No, we don't. And I I had the opportunity to interview Greta Thunberg for the Toronto International Film Festival. So it was interesting talking to Greta in the context of COVID, because, you know, a year ago when she was saying, just treat the crisis like a crisis, treat the emergency like an emergency, that maybe seemed abstract because it had been a long time, I think, since we'd seen governments really get on emergency footing in the face of a crisis. Now, obviously, in the United States, this is more complicated because Trump is not on emergency footing. But at the state level, in some states, not all states, we did see some pretty dramatic uh, action, right? So we now sort of have a picture of what it might look like to treat the climate crisis like a real crisis. And it makes it clear that we most certainly aren't doing that, yeah. including in California, where, <laughs> which is really in the teeth of it. Right. If this threat of fire is now just something so many people on the West Coast just have to live with, do you think that politicians there will actually find the courage to step up and, and make the changes and policies that you think that they should be doing anyway? I think they're going to need to be pressured, but I I think that they are maybe more receptive to pressure. I mean, this is a radicalizing experience for people in the West. So I don't think we know yet what the implications of these even more enormous fires are going to be for this generation of young people that is dealing with this triple whammy of COVID, police killings and impunity, and the climate crisis all banging down their doors. I mean, it's it's not just one kind of fire. You know, when I called the book On Fire, I wasn't, I didn't mean it metaphorically, but since the book came out in this one year, the Amazon has burned twice, Australia mm-hmm. has burned, now these fires. I mean, this is, is going to redraw the political map somehow, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that the really worrying thing is that it isn't just like we, we need to not only be thinking about how maybe democratic governors might be more willing to introduce bold climate policies, but the right is also moving, right? Like mm-hmm. the right also has a response to this era of so many people being displaced to the kind of existential terror of living with all of these crises. And their response is, is, is fascism. I mean, their response is 
close the borders, find more internal enemies, Mm. double down on a hierarchy of humanity that justifies why some people have to be locked out and some people are going to be cared for. And unfortunately, you know, we are trapped in an apocalyptic story that has prepared a really large sector of the American public, but not just the American public, to see all of these things happening as signs from God, right? And that you are one of the chosen, you are going to be protected. And in a weird way, that biblical apocalyptic narrative about rapture is what is being enacted in the real world when the rich protect themselves and lock out everybody else, right? They're the chosen, they have private security, they have private firefighters, you know, their money will protect them. Yeah. Like what what is a gated community except for like heaven on earth, right? That's interesting. And I think that's a (laughs) key because I think in a lot of ways, our politics are sort of post-climate denial, even if many Americans still don't believe in it in a scientific way. I think the right has a climate plan, as you say, and it's not mm-hmm. one any of us would care for. Like when I say, you know, post-denial politics too, it's yeah. like t- thinking about big business. If you're in the extraction industry, you know it's not going to last forever. And, and I guess the idea is like, well, we still need to maintain some sort of advantage when things really go to shit. But I don't know. It seems right, and and this is why I do think we need to talk a little bit more about the role these you know rapture fantasies are, mm. are playing. You know, the metabolizing of massive disasters, including pandemics, as a divine will, runs really, really, really deep in the DNA of the Americas. Yeah, but then I find myself wondering, like. How much of this are people just going to start accepting as the new normal and just being like, well, half the year you can't breathe? Well, so on the right, you have the eco-fascism. But uh, I think in a kind of centrist or liberal outlook, you have this approach to climate change, which is instead of implementing systemic change and really rethinking the way we live, we could just make these little tweaks around the edge so we could have climate hacking we could, you know, instead of decarbonizing the economy, just offset our carbon. And something I really liked was that the way you describe living with that smoke just makes so clear how inadequate these little changes are. You describe like one of the climate hacking ideas is, well, we could block out the sun because then the sun will be less hot and the world won't be, <laughs> the world won't be warmed anymore. But like living without the sun is not, is not sustainable. And you describe that firsthand. I mean, we can adapt to some pretty unacceptable things as humans. This is the downside of being adaptable. You know, in Delhi, they don't see the sky much because, you know, of air quality. The same is true of many large Chinese cities. But I can tell you from living without the sun, you know, as as you were saying, Laura, there's a unique sort of claustrophobia there. You just feel like you you just cannot escape the mess you have made. It is all around you and there is no sky. And and that sort of whatever the sky represents in a feeling of kind of expanse, escape, it runs really deep in the human imagination. And when you lose the sky, you just feel so trapped in this mess we've created. So yeah, it is possible to normalize this. It's also possible for all of a sudden something that had been normalized to no longer be accepted. Right. I mean, Mm. this is the the arithmetic of social movements that is so very, very hard to calculate. We are speaking at a time when people are in uprisings on the street in the face of of crimes that are not new. Right. I mean, and so we can never predict when people will just have, have just had enough 
So for people who are thinking about these wildfires and also who are interested in the Green New Deal, which aspects of the Green New Deal specifically do you think could start to get these fires under control, this kind of seasonal cycle of out-of-control wildfires? Hmm. One is affordable housing, public housing, co-op housing, housing built around one of the things we've learned uh, during this pandemic, which is the nuclear family is a crappy technology. We miss our friends. We miss our communities. Um, let's have pod-based <laughs> housing <laughs> that encourages you know, intergenerational living, living with friends, living at a scale that is safe. And let's fund the hell out of it. There has to be such a huge investment in affordable housing. So I think one piece of the Green New Deal is the housing piece. Another piece of it is a revived and revamped Civilian Conservation Corps. The original New Deal hired 2 million young men to plant more than 3 billion trees and built 800 state parks, some of which burned to the ground during these fires. Um, I don't think we need a replica of that. Like I said, I think a new Civilian Conservation Corps has to be part of repairing not just the land, but relationships and a, a process of reparations with Indigenous people. So I think that Indigenous people should control the new Civilian Conservation Corps if there is going to be one. So yeah, I, I think those two pieces would be a really good place to start. Let's plant a bunch of trees, give a bunch of land back, and build a, a lot of great pod-based affordable housing. How's that? <laughs> I think that sounds great. It sounds like <laughs> utopia to me. Welcome to my dreamscape. <laughs> um, thanks so much for coming on and talking to us. It was a pleasure. Thank you both for your wonderful work. After a short break, Alex will be talking to longtime campaign reporter and frequent guest on the show, Walter Shapiro, about what we can expect from the vice presidential debate. are joined now by veteran campaign reporter and frequent politics of everything guest Walter Shapiro. Walter is going to talk to us about the vice presidential debate, the most exciting night in political media. <laughs> uh, Walter, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Alex. <laughs> well, let's just get right into it. What can we expect to see tonight at the debate between Vice President Pence and Senator Harris? After the Trump-Biden mudfest, predicting any debate has to have a certain asterisk attached. <laughs> that said, what I actually think we will do is we will see a throwback debate where there'll be sharp differences, but there'll be civility. Remember in the 1990s, Pence, when he was doing socially conservative radio in Indiana, mm -hmm. referred to himself as Rush Limbaugh on decaf. <laughs> so, I mean, if Trump colored in no lines, Pence, for all of his far right-wing views, will color in all of them. And I think Kamala Harris uh, will just make a case against how incompetent the Trump administration is and how insensitive they are on racial issues. It seems impossible for it to resemble in any way what we saw between Trump and Biden. And I think it's a good point for people to remember that Pence is, as you mentioned, a radio veteran. I mean, he certainly is a, knows how to communicate. Do you think that people who are expecting one side or the other side to dominate, uh, do you think 
at the end of the day, this is going to have a, any major determinant in the race in November? No. I think <laughs> okay, one of the right. safest <laughs> bets Thanks, in politics <laughs> is even in normal elections, and this is anything but, vice presidential debates don't matter. The most <laughs> dramatic moment in any of the 11 vice presidential debates starting in 1976 was when 41-year-old Dan Quayle, with a reputation as a lightweight, as uh, the first George Bush's running mate in 1988, likened himself to 43-year-old Jack Kennedy. Hmm. And that was enough for Senator Lloyd Benson, Michael Dukakis's running mate, to break in and say, I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. And you, Senator, are no Jack Kennedy. It was a wonderful moment that Benson had rehearsed in advance. <laughs> but to give you an idea of how little effect it had on the race, across the country, the Dukakis-Benson ticket got wiped out. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a safe prediction to say, no matter how good the zingers, no matter how impressive the performance, this is probably going to have very little effect. Well, if it's not going to have any effect on the November election, uh, why should we watch it? Okay. Any moment where the Democrats can make their case without interruption is a good case. So in that sense, it is just a good reminder. We may be seeing both of these candidates running for president in 2024. And how they present themselves will have something to do with how they are perceived in 2024. Not a big something, but it's an interesting wrinkle on this debate. Um, you brought up the only memorable line in vice presidential debate history already, which made me think about how little I can remember from all the vice presidential debates I have watched. <laughs> I mean, basically, Alex, I realized if you strapped me to a chair and threatened something dire, if I didn't tell you a memorable moment from the Tim Kaine, Mike Pence <laughs> debate of 2016, which is just four years ago. Mm -hmm. I would say just do whatever you want to me because I can't remember a blasted thing. No, no, I, I think I'm in the same boat. So uh, it seems that if you were going to tune into the vice presidential debate, it oh, might please be because... Do, because uh, please do, of course. Because yeah, God knows duty. the last thing I want to do is keep anyone from the civic religion that debates <laughs> have become in American life, particularly and after the Trump-Biden contest. And it may be a, a terrifying glimpse of our future, as you point out, just four short years from now, if Pence gets it. But uh, we'll see. All right. Well, Walter, as always, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. This was great fun, Alex. This is the politics of everything. Thanks for listening. <laughs>